Hello and welcome to What We Talk About When We Talk About Tech, a podcast about tech storytelling and the words and narratives shaping the industry. I'm Rich Gore, you can follow me on Twitter at Rich G Gore, and I'm here with my co-host Jennifer Riggins as always, you can follow her on Twitter at JK Riggins and in this week's episode we're talking with Neil Ford who is a software architect and consultant at ThoughtWorks. Neil is also the author of a number of books and is also a trainer for O'Reilly where he runs a number of different online courses on software architecture and a number of other issues within software. So we're going to talk all about what Neil does and his role at ThoughtWorks. So there's lots to talk about, of course. Um, But yeah, before we get started, let's first meet Neil. Neil, how are you? Thanks for joining us. Uh, It's my pleasure. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. It'd be good if you could probably give us an introduction, probably slightly better than mine. So if you could sort of explain who you are, what you do. Yeah, that'd be great. Well, you got uh, a couple of the relevant bits, so that's good. I, I work for ThoughtWorks, who's an international consulting company. I've been there a little over 15 years now, so I've been there for a while. My role at ThoughtWorks is uh, I'm a director. I also do a lot of software architecture, but my business cards actually also have my title as a meme wrangler, which ThoughtWorks is one of those companies that lets you choose your own title. And uh, when I first started at ThoughtWorks, my a business card said application architect, which is a pretty good reflection of the kind of work that I did at that time. But the problem with that business card was that in many organizations, it basically means post-useful. That title means that you don't actually do any work anymore. You just do drawings and go to meetings and that kind of stuff. And so when it came time to get a new set of business cards, I decided to go a little more adventurous and went with a meme wrangler. Meme, of course, is the uh, Richard uh, Dawkins idea of viral thought. And the wrangler has two useful meanings. One is kind of media mediating arguments and the others kind of gently hurting things. And, you know, it's one of those self-fulfilling prophecies because the other thing that I've done from a biographical standpoint that most people probably know me from is the eight books that I've written. Most recent one was Fundamentals of Software Architecture. And the one before that was Building Evolutionary Architectures. And um, when I publish a new book, I put on social media that I have wrangled a new meme. So the the title has become a little bit self-prophesying, but in more ways than one, because you know, one of the superpowers of a software consultant is you get to see lots and lots of different projects. And if you're a natural born pattern matcher, like many architects are, you can kind of start piecing together your patterns and, and practices and realize some insights. Of course, every superpower comes with kryptonite. And the kryptonite of most consultants is you don't get to see a project from beginning to end, you know, through all of its glorious phases, you, you kind of drop in and see things. But I've managed to leverage that superpower quite well uh, by harvesting memes and uh, eventually writing books about them. I've also spoken at a number of uh, developers conferences. Uh, I'm, I have a regular host on a podcast, the ThoughtWorks Technology Podcast, along with five other people and uh, do a lot of public facing stuff for uh, ThoughtWorks. So you're a herder of cats, but you don't see them through to whatever happens after you herd cats, because it's a silly thing to do, isn't it? Well, exactly. I mean, you know, cats resist herding and, and some software projects resist being uh, wrangled as well. So, uh, but it's an apt metaphor. I, I saw a great cartoon years ago. It was uh, the the dreams of project of software project managers, and it was a cat herder at work, and it was thinking, ah, oh, this would be so much easier than managing a software project. <laughs> <laughs> I I have to ask because I think you're the first one on our show. Uh, I think that has written a book. 
and numerous books. So kind of a twofold question. One, what made you write your first book? Was it your pitch or someone else? And how do you go about deciding which are your next books to write or are there external influences in that? Uh, two great questions. Uh, so particularly when I started, my first book was published in 1995. And particularly at that time, the best prerequisite for writing a technical book is having already published a technical book, which is tough because, you know, it's a, kind of a chicken and egg <laughs> problem there. But the part of the problem is, uh, and this was true then, and it's it's a little better now, but not much, is that 90% of advances for technical books are returned to the publisher because people just have no idea how much effort it really takes to write a book. And you have this great idea and you start working on it and you realize this is miserable. I don't want to do this anymore. Not even for money. I'll give the money back. And so uh, the first book that I wrote was actually about a particular tool, this uh, rapid application development tool called Delphi or Delphi, depending on what part of the world you're in, a Borland tool, very nice tool. But I wrote that as a co-author with another uh, guy who'd already been published. So that was, that's the best way to get into the publishing world is publish with someone who's already been published because then you've met the prerequisite for your next one, which is, you know, you can uh, write a book about something because you've already been published. But the main thing that technical publishers want and the reason they give advances is so they can put pressure on you. But, you know, the, the real speculation they have is, you know, you obviously have something to say technically, but can you write a complete English sentence that makes grammatical sense? And can you follow through with the whole thing? And that, that of course, I think is part of the prerequisite that if you've already published a book, they know, well, this person can probably write a sentence and they have seen a project all the way through. So there's a, a better chance that you'll get it through. The first few books that I wrote and actually went through a learning process because the first one was about a particular tool. In fact, the first three were basically about tools. Uh, the first one was Delphi and the second one was JBuilder. The third one, I picked open source frameworks, which is a terrible idea because they change so often and it's playing whack-a-mole. And so you're constantly having to chase revisions, et cetera. And so after that, uh, a lot of my books have actually been collaborations with other authors because I really like collaborative work. When it's done well, I think the sum is always greater than the parts. And so uh, I started writing the one book with another co-author who ended up, he and his wife ended up pregnant with triplets. And so he then had another hobby that was not a book. And so that was the productive programmer, but that was a book about general programmer productivity because we lamented the fact that uh, too many developers, in our opinion, rather than running their computer, were walking their computer. You know, seeing developers use the mouse to move the cursor three spaces to the right, rather than just use the arrow key on the keyboard and hit three times or even better, you know, the control key that move the arrows and not take your fingers off the home row and a lot of, you know, productivity hints and stuff like that. Then after that, I moved into, I'd written a, a series of articles about functional programming. So I wrote a functional programming book. Uh, the last few books have been about software architecture. In fact, the one that I'm, we're just finishing up now is called Software Architecture, The Hard Parts. And so obviously I've, I've kind of wandered around looking for subjects, but it's always a subject that is deep enough to be, and so I've actually built some criteria for why you would do something as crazy as writing write a book in 2021, because mm -hmm. I've also realized it's almost impossible to get anybody to read a book now. Everyone has the attention span of a gnat that's been drinking too much caffeine now. So re reading an entire book is really tough on people. And so what are the justifications for writing a book in 2021? And this, this is actually, I wish I'd known this a while ago, it would have saved me a couple of books. So one of them is abstract enough to need a book to understand it. So you're never going to see another API book written because what's the point? It's all online now and it can be updated online in instantaneously, which books cannot. So 
needs to be abstract beyond just collection of details is number one. Number two is because it takes a long time to write a book, usually about two years to write a book if you're hurrying, uh, sometimes even longer, you want that to be IP that's not going to evaporate in six months. And so our goal is should last at least five years, but hopefully 10 years so that it has some shelf life. And so it needs to be broad enough to do that which means a lot of books with a lot of source code in them don't qualify because the source code eventually stops working as time goes by. The next criteria is uh, needs to have a narrative arc. It needs to reach a conclusion. It needs to be about something. It can't just be a dry collection of facts that you've uh, put together about something. It needs to actually reach a conclusion and, and have a point of view and say something interesting to justify people going back and, and reading it. And so that's the kind of things I look for now. Is this a book or is it a an online class or is it a blog or because there are a lot of different ways you can express yourself in media now books are only one of them and in fact it's the most cumbersome way by far but a lot of things like fundamentals of software architecture my most recent book with mark richards we realized that there was not really a good curriculum out in the world for transitioning from a tech lead or developer into software architect and that's a good book because it needs to be referenceable and in fact i think we were justified because while most books now are sold as electronic books, we've actually sold more paper copies of our Fundamentals of Software Architecture book than electronic copies. And we think it's because it's easier to reference if it's something that you can open and hold as a, as a book. And the one I'm writing now is also about software architecture, which nicely fits most of those categories because it's abstract, it's complex, it's hard to understand, and hopefully the IP will last for a while. And then these, the people buying your books are usually students and graduate students in computer science and engineering, or are they typically practitioners in the workplace? More practitioners, although several universities are now using our fundamentals book as a textbook for burgeoning software architects, uh, but it's mostly practitioners and mostly professional people who are, we we try to make our book both for existing software architects, because, you know, part of the problem with software architecture as a role is that you perpetually have uh, imposter syndrome because it's so multifaceted. There's so many things you have to know and touch on and have influence over that, you know, even experienced architects, there are gaps in the things that they know. Maybe not about technical things, but the entire third part of our book is, is what are called, ironically, soft skills, uh, which is ironic because those are the most difficult things for most technologists to pick up, which is playing nice with the other humanoids. Some technologists have difficulties with that, and and but you have to be able to convince people to do something if you're an architect. And so, uh, so even experienced architects have knowledge gaps like that, but we also targeted it toward experienced tech leads or aspiring architects to try to give them a basis for, you know, what do you need to, to start moving into this role and identifying gaps beyond what we could cover in, you know, 450 page book. One thing you talked about, you get listed a couple of requirements to actually go through the process of writing a book that isn't, you know, out of date by the time it publishes. So you said abstract enough to write a book takes... Mm -hmm will still be relevant not only in two years later when the book publishes, but has that IP that continues five to 10 years, deals with a complex topic that can't be explained in more easily in a blog or in a modular format. And it needs to have a narrative arc besides yourself, of course. Who do you think is doing that best? Who would be an example of a tech storyteller that's doing that best nowadays? 
that's a great question. Uh, you know, the, the, the exemplar for fantastic technical writing has always been Martin Fowler because he's a, such a great author. And he's, he takes very complex subjects and figures out a way to explain them in a way that is understandable by humans. And in fact, he's done that with several of his books. His domain-specific languages book is a, a model of clarity of understanding that complex problem space. And he's done that with several topics. So, But he's a sort of, uh, you know, a pinnacle to climb in terms of technical writing because, and he doesn't produce very much because it's all very, very deliberate and thought out. You know, for current writers, I, you know, I think Mark is, a, uh, by co-author, is a very good writer, but of course I'm writing books with him. So I would I would not probably uh, hitch my wagon to someone who I thought was a terrible writer. And there are lots of terrible tech writers out there. I, I see lots of uh, manuscripts at time that I'll never get back. Uh, but, you know, Sam Newman is also a great writer. Uh, very good, deep technically, very good writer, very engaging style. Another great technical writer, I mean, really terrific technical writer is Gregor Hopi, who just wrote The uh, Architect Elevator which is a fantastic book. And it, it meets all my criteria very, very nicely because it's really about the different roles of an architect as you ride the elevator up and down. So the engine room architect versus the developer architect versus the C-suite architect. As you ride the elevator up and down in a large organization, you have to put on different hats. And that's really what that book is about. And it's a brilliant bit of uh, storytelling. One of the things, uh, since you know this is about storytelling, uh, one of the things I've always really enjoyed in books, uh, and in fact, I'm incorporating some of this into our most recent book. So Mark and I are working on a book right now called Architecture of the Hard Parts. And there was a great book that came out, this has been 20 something years ago by Bruce Tate. Uh, I believe it was his Bitter Java book, which was one of the first books that came out that suggested that Java maybe wasn't the greatest thing created by the mind of man, that there might be some, some deficiencies in it, shocking as that may be. But the fascinating thing about that book, and I think it was that book, was he interspersed the entire book with kayaking stories. And you get caught up in the kayaking stories along with the stuff that's going on. It was a great book that came out a few years ago called The Phoenix Project. And it was really about continuous integration and continuous delivery, but told in this novelized way about this organization. So the book we're working on right now is called Software Architecture, The Hard Parts. And it's about these very difficult problems in software architecture. And we found that if you just write pure exposition for that, it gets long. And so we've invented uh, this company called Penultimate Electronics that has a group of workers called the SysOp Squad that goes around and installs TVs and that kind of stuff. And they have an existing system. And what they're doing through the course of the book is restructuring that system, applying these modern lessons in distributed architectures. And so the entire book is now scattered with SysOps squad stories. And we're building personalities around individual architects and developers, et cetera, throughout the book so that it, it grounds the uh, narrative in something a lot more concrete. And in fact, a great piece of advice that I've only slowly picked up, another one of the things I wished I knew is this great writer's principle a show don't tell don't tell people about things, illustrate them because people love stories and people associate with stories. And so the more you can bring those things to life with, you know, realistic stories or that have realistic context, the, the more it resonates with people. And it and easier it is to write because, you know, we've been told stories literally since our first memories. So we're used to the idea of stories that have, you know, beginning, middle and end and, you know, convey some information. So it's a natural way to, uh, to convey information that's not used enough in technical writing, I think. I agree completely. And to to kind of pick up on telling stories, I was wondering if you could, for anyone listening that maybe doesn't know, like, could you sort of tell a story or explain what a software architect does and where they've sort of come from as a role and what sort of role they play in the 
tech industry at the moment. Absolutely, because it's it's not well understood because it's not an official role. Every company gets to make up their own what they mean by architect. And, and as I mentioned before, it's very multifaceted. But in general, a software architect is someone who is looking after the, uh, so the the uh, the jokey definition was the, the person who cares about all the important stuff on the project, whatever those things are. Uh, so there may be a lot of those things, but certainly the structural design of a piece of software is a responsibility of a software architect. Governing the things that happen on a software project like code quality, security, uh, those things that need to be looked after from a uh, quality standpoint or security, or also looks after all of uh, what some people call non-functional requirements. Uh, we call them architecture characteristics, things like performance and scalability and elasticity, uh, those uh, kind of operational things that need to be looked after. Uh, but also, not only are they responsible for coming up with the structural design, but also heavy trade-off analysis. So our definition of of software architecture, in fact, from our book, is that it's any decision that has significant trade-offs associated with all the different possible choices. Because it's these decisions that have long-term impacts. A lot of these are one-way decisions. If I choose this pattern in architecture, that means in six months, I cannot do this other thing because I've chosen a one-way path. And you want to make sure that you are taking into account the implications of the decisions you're making. So a lot of it is about heavy trade-off analysis. And that's actually what I try to train new architects is don't evangelize things because there are enough evangelists around technologies already out there. Instead, become the cold objective arbiter of every problem you see has good parts and bad parts. Don't get too involved in either one of them. Always be able to gauge what the real trade-offs are, and that gives you real value within an organization. And then the last part of the role of software architect is this communicating this vision to the non-technical people in the organization presentations about your architecture plan. You've got to sell this to someone who writes checks uh, and, you know, assigns resources and influence is another one of those things because you're a leader on software development teams. And so those kinds of uh, the, what I call the soft skills earlier, those difficult things are often the things that trip uh, new architects up because you demonstrated technical capabilities to get to the role of architect, but you may not have had to exhibit your influencing skills. And so that has to be backfilled. And so, and there are a lot of specialized kinds of architects as well. Enterprise architects look at the merger between strategy and technology and think about the C-suite and how they want to consume technologies. You have data architects who are primarily interested in database design and schema design, et cetera. And like I say, you've got all these different flavors running around uh, in organizations. But in general, and we also identify a role that we call an accidental architect. It's someone on a software project who is making decisions with long-term impact whether they have the role of architect or not, whether they have that word by their name, that's an architecture decision. If this is a decision that is going to cause serious trade-offs at some point in the future, it's architecture, whether you're called that or not. And so it's really any decision that involves heavy trade-off analysis and uh, interesting structural uh, implications in projects. So you mentioned, yeah, trade-offs and influencing, and it kind of occurs to me that a big part of that, or a tool for that, I suppose, is like storytelling and language, so soft skills, I guess. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about the role that sort of storytelling and language and communication plays in in being a software architect. 
Well, there are a couple of very important uh, roles, but in particular language. So uh, Eric Evans, who wrote the book Domain Driven Design, one of the many contributions he provided to the software world was this idea of ubiquitous language on a software project. So anytime someone's on a software project, you should have ubiquitous language so that when you're using technical terms, you don't accidentally talk past one another. And I got a, a visceral lesson about this. I was on a project several years ago, and the developers on that project have been using the term client and customer interchangeably. And I went to a meeting with a bunch of business analysts at one point, and at some point, one of the business analysts said, well, of course, that applies to a customer, but not a client. And my head exploded because I said, whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute. You mean there's a difference between those things? And they explained the subtle difference. And I left that meeting to go back and start restructuring some code because we had made some heavy assumptions that that was just a, a synonym for the same thing. Turns out there are important distinctions between that. And so it's critical on a software project because, you know, if you're building software, you're building an engineering artifact. You can't be wishy-washy with your terms if you're trying to build some sort of solid artifact. But there's another important thing that I think most organizations miss that I end up advocating for a lot is that, so when you talk about these non-functional requirements, uh, architecture characteristics like performance, how many different ways can you measure performance in a piece of software? Probably dozens, at least. So when you're talking about a high-performance application, that's meaningless because you're not talking about an actual measure of some kind. And so one of the things that I'm strongly encouraging organizations to do is to gather all of their architects together and have them build a ubiquitous language within that group of architects company-wide so that when you say technical terms to other architects, you're not talking past one another. Because some architects think performance means request and response, and some people think it means page load time. If you have a precise language as you have conversations with each other, there are a lot fewer chances of you missing something because you're using imprecise language. One of the things that we don't have, so my, I actually started in the uh, traditional engineering world and mechanical engineering before I moved to computer science. And I spent enough time in that space to realize that they have a lot of very precise measurements and tools and way to analyze things that we don't have yet in software. We don't have physics yet in software. So it's contingent upon every company to build their own objective language to talk about these things. Otherwise, you end up wasting a lot of time talking past one another and not understanding one another and then only gradually coming to a consensus and then having to rework a bunch of stuff. So do you not think like you, you referenced Gene Kim earlier, uh, do you think the Dora metrics are where companies should be? Or is that only at the highest, like most elite companies that can achieve them? Well, I mean, there are aspirational goals everywhere. I mean, the Dora metrics are great because it's really about value. You know, how do you add value through engineering practices? So I think all of those metrics are great, but you shouldn't stop there. You know, the, the folks who built that before that, Jez Humble and Dave Farley wrote the continuous uh, delivery book. And a lot of that is about engineering practices and upskilling uh, your engineering practices. A lot of those are metrics and other ways to, to do valuations for those. So that's a good example, actually, of we're tiptoeing into actual value-based metrics in the software world very slowly. Uh, we don't have anywhere near the math that they have in engineering, but we're we're getting there. So those are good examples of, you know, any kind of, so I'm sure you've had the experience of, of learning a new programming language. So if you move from Java to Ruby, for example, the first while you code in Ruby, your code Java just in Ruby syntax, and you gradually learn, you know, how to code idiomatically in that new language. I think the exact same thing is true here with software metrics. We started out trying to measure the things that we measure in similar kinds.
lines of manufacturing, but, and some of those work, but some of them don't. But at, over time, we gradually learn, oh, this is the thing that shows value in software. This is the thing we should be measuring. And so as time goes on, I think like the Dora metrics, we're going to find richer and richer measurements and metrics we can apply and do a lot more analytical work on uh, software architecture. We're just too young and an I, engineering discipline yet. Mm -hmm. I just want to apologize because we just talked about ubiquitous language and then we used a Kodo pseudo acronym. Yeah, so I just right. wanted to find exactly. for people if you don't know, Dora metrics are DevOps research and assessments. These are four metrics to your deployment frequency, your mean lead time for changes, your mean time to recover, and your change failure rate. The companies that are, you know, the, to use another acronym, the FANGs, the Facebook <laughs> alphabet slash old Google, uh, Microsoft, Netflix, these are the ones that are excelling at these metrics. There aren't that many companies doing it at that level, but it's really important. And yeah, if you talk to Dave Farley now, um, when I talk to Dave, that's the way he talks about his emphasis on software engineering is on the engineering side, because he says we have to get back to those principles of basically the scientific method. It all comes back to hypothesizing and experimenting and also a term that's probably going to be fluent in the last third of your new book, but psychological safety being the hot term right now and having teams that have that security and that trust that they can fail, learn quickly and go again. Absolutely. I think that's, uh, the you know, we're, we're starting to see now some truly effective metrics. You know, the continuous delivery book, I, I, I sort of make the joke that if I'd written that book, I would have given it some terrible name like, you know, modern engineering practices for effective software projects, but they were clever enough to give it a name like continuous delivery, which sells a lot better than some very long descriptive name that, you know, actually describes what it's doing. So, you know, a lot of the Dora stuff came out of uh, the book Accelerate and, you know, forever. So Jez used to work at ThoughtWorks. Uh, in fact, when he was writing the uh, continuous delivery book, he worked at ThoughtWorks where I work now. And uh, one of the things that we were constantly having people come to us, because we were one of the early pioneers of agile software development. And our first conversation with every client was convincing them that this crazy hippie agile thing wasn't, you know, just some waste of time. And we always got this question, can you prove that these engineering practices are better? And it's like, uh, and so that's what the Accelerate book actually does, is it proves it using statistical analysis and a bunch of other scientific methods that in in fact, if you adopt some of these practices, you can provenly do better in terms of the things that matter to companies. You definitely brought up an interesting word that now we're on 20 years since the Agile Manifesto. How has it changed or not changed the software industry? And how does it change your work as a software a storyteller? Well, it's it's uh, it's tough to ask me that because I work for ThoughtWorks uh, and ThoughtWorks has employed two of the signatories of the Agile Manifesto. Martin Fowler is still there and Jim Highsmith just retired quite recently, in fact, uh, and he was working uh, with ThoughtWorks as well. Uh, but, you know, and I was actually in the industry when Agile came along and I was an early adapter of it because I saw exactly what the, the benefit and value of that was. But, you know, I came from the engineering world, so I've always been results focused and having done several software projects in an older style, I immediately saw the appeal of uh, agility in the Agile software movement. And, you know, it's really just a way of learning about how software is a different engineering discipline than all these other disciplines. And I think agility really embraces that. Uh, 
it has had a profound effect on the software development world. In fact, the software development world is, is nowhere near what it was before that. Early, in the early days, like I say, every conversation we had was, should you be doing this agile stuff? Now we never have that conversation. And in fact, the lowest movers, which are typically large governments, have now fully embraced all of these ideas and are doubling, tripling down on these engineering practices. Because you know what? At the end of the day, ThoughtWorks has been a very successful consulting company. because, And we've been focused on these agile software development principles from almost day one. As soon as Martin Fowler joined the company, we started doing this stuff. And you know what? It works. We deliver software on a regular cadence. And it's shocking to some of our clients that we come in and start delivering software and they've never seen that before. They've been working on software for a long time, for years, but they've never actually seen any of it delivered. And we come in and immediately start delivering software. And it's a revelation that, you know, software is one of those interesting things that there are no real, real world constraints on how complicated you can let things get. And you can literally just build castles in the sky and just keep building, keep building, keep building until and, no, and never actually finish anything. I'm sure you've everybody on that's listening to this has been on a project where the first 90% takes half the time and then the last 10% takes the second half of the time because you got everything to 80% done and then moved off to something else and left the intractable problems to last and then you got to deal with those. Well, Agile doesn't let you do that. You have to ship software constantly and it has to be shippable constantly. And that pressure is a tremendous benefit for keeping you out of this speculative, you know, Fred Brooks identified the second system syndrome. The most dangerous piece of software you can build is version two of anything because you always get stuck in analysis paralysis because it's like, oh, I've been living with the crappy version one forever, version two, and then it could do this, and then it could do this, and then it could do that. And then, and you spend years in analysis paralysis before you actually start building anything. We, For many companies, we used to come in and look at a two-year requirements plan and just flush it down the toilet and say, okay, what's a thing you have to have? Okay, that, let's build that and put it in production. Okay, what's another thing you have to, okay, and just start delivering software and you realize that, you don't have to have this huge pent up demand for software when you can deliver it on a constant basis. You can change your mind on a weekly basis about what you want to see and evolve in exactly the way our business ecosystem is evolving. And so this is a long answer, but to circle back around how this has affected the world, it couldn't be any other way because all we're doing in the software world is reflecting the priorities and the values of the business that we're writing software for, the people who are paying us. And the cadence of change has spent up tremendously in the business world. That, of course, is enabled by technology, but there's a symbiotic relationship there that every leap we get in technology, business figures out a way to soak up all that advantage in something else to give them a competitive advantage. And so there's a push-pull here. But I think Agile works so well for software, particularly for business systems, because businesses need to change and evolve in a rapid manner. And Agile technology or Agile engineering allows you to map that same kind of rapid evolution of the real world world has in the software that's abstracting the real world. You mentioned kind of this like push-pull, uh, which sort of brings me nicely on to ThoughtWorks, which you mentioned as well. So for anyone that doesn't know ThoughtWorks, could you sort of explain what they do and also your role within the organization and sort of 
Yep, we're an international consulting company. We're in uh, lots of different countries now, uh, all over the world. We just opened new offices in uh, Romania and Finland, in fact. Uh, but we got uh, a huge presence in China, India, South America, pretty much all the uh, the major continents. Uh, we're a software consultancy. When I joined uh, 15 years ago, we were about 1,100 people. We're over 8,000 people now. We're still growing rapidly. We mostly specialize in difficult software problems. And uh, as a we're a kind of an interesting company because for the size company we are, we produce an inordinate number of books. I've written a bunch of books. Martin Fowler is our chief scientist. Uh, Jez Humble was there when they wrote Continuous Delivery. Keith Morris works there now. He wrote the Infrastructure's Code book for O'Reilly. I mean, we, we generate a lot of books. In fact, a lot of aspiring authors come to ThoughtWorks. But we're a consulting company that tries to tackle the most difficult problems we can find. We've always been a hardcore, uh, agile organization. In fact, we do, without any other obvious constraints, on projects, we do full-on XP. In fact, you know, many of the things in the continuous delivery book are really just the XP uh, engineering practices uh, updated about 15 years into the future. But we do full-on pair programming. We do continuous delivery. We do test-driven development. We do all the things that uh, were really pioneered by Kent Beck and the extreme programmers and uh, have been very successful with it. It's a great way to produce high-quality software. So for a while, ThoughtWorks had its own tool division and we applied all of these same principles to the products that we built as part of that uh, tool division. We uh, do consulting for a wide variety of different industries, but kind of specialize in very difficult problems because we like meaty, difficult problems that have you have to build interesting solutions for. Do you think, um, so having this sort of organization, there's clearly lots of really interesting people there and lots of like, interesting ideas swirling about. Do you think having this sort of organizational setup is a good place to sort of incubate them and a better way to communicate them with the outside world as well? Well, I think so. I mean, you know, there's a certain a level of aptitude that you have to exhibit before you can get hired by ThoughtWorks. But it's always fascinating to chat with people within ThoughtWorks about, uh, you know, their hobbies and, you know, all the deep things beyond technology that they're really into. So I think that's really the important thing is have a lot of intellectually very curious people around. And the fact that they're intellectually curious about software development means that they're probably also intellectually curious about a lot of other stuff, which means that they're just interesting people. So that it's fun to work with interesting people who have a lot of curiosity about a lot of a lot of stuff. I would say curiosity is one of the driving forces. You know, it takes a, a special kind of person to do consulting work because, you know, it's very rapid changing. There used to be a lot of travel, although now it's pretty much all at home like everything else is, at least temporarily here. But, you know, it, but ThoughtWorks itself, uh, you know, it's one of those self-fulfilling prophecies. If it's a company that produces a lot of books, then aspiring authors end up there because they say, well, they produce a lot of books. There must be something to that. And so then you get a lot of people there who are interested in writing and talking about writing and that just creates a, a more fertile environment for uh, writers to grow. It's the mulch for uh, good writing. <laughs> you had spoken earlier about what makes the right format for a book versus a blog post versus a, to be very meta, podcast versus conferences, which are they conferences anymore or just webinars? How do you find the different contexts that works uh, for you and for your clients? How do you just decide and what is the best place? What is your favorite medium too? Well, favorite's tough because they all have trade-offs. I really love doing live presentations, particularly things like keynotes. And live conferences will definitely come back because there are two important functions that live conferences serve that you cannot get online. One of them is dedicated away time to concentrate on a subject that you need to learn deeply. Online conferences don't work because it's just another talking head on a screen and that instantly gets faded out. So 
In fact, we found that in online events, having two people talking versus just one is much better because it's more like a dialogue. Single talking heads on screens are terrible. Nobody can pay attention to them anymore because that's your entire life now. And the last thing you want to do is that. So one of them is dedicated to away time, uh, getting away from your desk and your screen to spend some time in a, a place. But the other critical thing is networking, particularly for architects. We used to do, uh, O'Reilly used to do a software architecture conference and it was almost freakish how much the software architect like to network with each other. We realized, you know, in a large company, even a large company, there are not that many software architects. There are only a handful and they almost never get a chance to talk to peers in other companies. And so when you go to a conference like that, there's this great networking effect of learning from other people and, and you know, passing business cards around and, you know, uh, building your own uh, hiring network, et cetera. So those are vitally important things for live conferences. I'm, I'm very multimodal. I realize that people consume in lots of different formats. So I've done a fair number of streaming videos for software architecture subjects. And I never consume learning material via streaming video. I'd much rather read it. But I realize a lot of people would rather see it streamed. And so I'll produce all of those things. There are some things that are harder to produce. So something that can only go in a book is very hard to do something like an online class, but you can take slices of that material. So we do a fair amount of that. And we've actually changed a lot of our exposition style in COVID times because we've realized that everybody now has the attention span of a gnat that's had too much caffeine. And so we tend to, we've actually changed the way we do exposition because normally, so I'm a huge fan when I do live talk of these very long rambling ways of building up to a nice climax, you know, of a, you know, building up until you, when you hit the, the finale, it's like, oh, wow, you know, all those things just came together in this beautiful nexus. And I love doing those kind of things. You can't do that online because 10 minutes into it, everybody's bored and wandered away and listening to another. And so we've actually changed our exposition style and we're doing what we call lead with a punchline now. So whereas in the past, I would take 20 or 30 minutes or 45 minutes to build up to the conclusion that I'm coming with, when I'm doing stuff live, I start with the conclusion and then I backfill as to how I got there because people just don't have enough patience to wait. When you're live, they're captive. I mean, what are they going to do? They're either listening to you or they're going to the next door and listening to some other person speaking. And so they're much more indulgent of letting you spin a tale and build up context and, you know, so that you have a good finale punch to it, but you can't do that online. So we started leading with the punchline and then backfilling to get back to, you know, why we're, we're talking about this, but just the amount of exposition we do online is a lot less than you do live just because of the medium. So the medium definitely uh, changes the message. I also produce short written material for things that come in small pieces. I actually think it's it's important now to become uh, multimodal. In fact, uh, a lot of my colleagues come to me and say, oh, I want to write a book. And the first thing I try to do is convince them that they don't really want to write a book. It's a horrible slog and it takes a lot of time and effort. And, you know, almost anything is a better way to get your material out in the world faster. A blog entry, a you know, video on YouTube, podcast, anything is a lot less work and effort than a book. But of course, a book and effort shows the extra work that you put into it because it's deeper and has better abstractions and prettier pictures and that kind of stuff. So, you know, that's one of those things that you'd never put two years into putting together a presentation, but you'd put two years into writing a book. And so it's always going to be richer just because of the nature of the medium. It's, it's a lot less ephemeral, like a presentation. It's a lot more permanent. Therefore, you put a lot more effort into that because it is such a, a at least seemingly permanent artifact compared to a presentation. I mean, nothing ever goes away with the internet, but the perception of permanence matters.
Mm-hmm. Okay, so you are a part of increasing the productivity and the speed of releasing software, which in turn is making that software faster, which has led to streaming, mobile phones, et cetera, et cetera, which has led to this, what you you say, something not attention span, this not like attention span. Do you feel responsible for that? Is the tech industry where the ethical and moral responsibilities of the next generation? the digital native generation that is constantly on screens and doesn't have this attention span? Do you feel a sense of responsibility or is it just a byproduct? Is it okay? So there is responsibility. And one of the things that I think that we're going to see rise significantly over the next few years is the topic of ethics and software development. Uh, The development of algorithms who make people angry so that you can show them more ads is unethical. Full stop. There's no way to justify that. Just because you got a good paycheck is not a good reason for wrecking society. And so the ethics of software is going to play a big part. If you design a bridge that collapses and injures people, you are legally responsible for that. We're eventually going to see that same level of responsibility for, you know, wrecking societies and that kind of stuff for that kind of uh, what I would call malfeasance. Having said that, though, it's not our fault that attention spans are really short because I didn't create TV. TV contributed to the shortening of attention spans. I didn't create the internet. I build a lot of stuff on the internet, but the drive to get faster things is what created that. The business driver. It's not like a bunch of technologists force people to start consuming the internet. <laughs> they wanted to consume the internet. And you know, a lot of it plays into our worst tendencies. And so kids, you can't let kids watch 12 hours of TV a day, but you can't let them stare at screens for 12 hours a day either. So, you know, it's just a different problem than we had before. So I don't think the speed of change or even attention span, that that's something that is each person's responsibility. I think that, uh, so I wrote a book many years ago about productivity. I think the way that uh, operating systems are designed now and computers are designed are absolutely crushing productivity. Uh, Slack is where productivity goes to die. Any kind of thing that can arbitrarily interrupt you anytime during the day. So knowledge workers need flow state. You need long interrupted times that you can concentrate and think deeply about problems. And if you're getting a Slack notification every 90 seconds, you will never get to any place where you can think about anything at any depth whatsoever. I keep email turned off. I never use Slack for anything. I adamantly refuse to use Slack because it destroys my ability to be productive in any way. Now, I understand that there are uses for it. If you're on a software project and you're remote and you're spending eight hours a day working on the software project and you need to soak up every single detail of what happened and something like Slack is great. But the problem is every organization abuses it egregiously where every bit of flotsam and jetsam that happens in the organization gets blasted out to every person in the organization just crushing productivity. So I think it's each person's responsibility for carving out a place where they can be productive. Now, I think that what we're eventually doing is training the next generation to live in a more interrupt-driven world. And we've shown that the brain, human brain does not handle interruptions well. The context switch is really tough. Now, I think one of two things is going to either going to happen. We're going to epigenetically evolve so that we can do context switching faster and adapt to the slack-driven world much more readily, or we're going to realize that this is a terrible way to try to get anything done and back way off of tools like that and start being a lot more deliberate about the community 
communication medium within companies. Every company I've worked for, and ThoughtWorks is also guilty of this, there's always one place where all information goes to die. And uh, ThoughtWorks, it started out as Yahoo Messenger, and then it moved to something like Gchat, and then it moved to Slack. There's always some, some sort of communication medium that people can dump unstructured information onto without thinking much about it that's supposed to be you know captured for the organization, but that never does. And so being deliberate about thinking about how you spread information in an organization, I think is key to being an effective organization. We're finally starting to see some things come out about this. I, I read a book recently and I'm struggling to remember the name of it now, uh, but it was exactly about this, this issue of these hyper-connected work environments. The whole premise was if everybody's hyper-connected, then you know everybody can just, you can get rid of middlemen and meetings and you know everybody's connected to everything all the time, but we just don't work that way. And it's really hurting, I think, our productivity. So I actually think that we're not going to evolve fast enough and we're going to see a backlash against a lot of the instantaneousness of communication organizations because you just can't get anything done. Or it's the need to move to asynchronous. It needs to be perceived as asynchronous, not that you need to always be responding. And that's part of the culture. Um, Something you were talking about was with software architecture about that it's a mix of the structural design and the governance code quality security are you talking about in your book, in your conversation with your client, the ethics side of it? If this scales, what are the ramifications? Who are excluded from it? Certainly we've seen, like you said, with structural engineering, if a bridge breaks, they're going to get sued. The structural engineer is responsible. We've seen with Volkswagen emission scandal, that developer went to jail for a couple of years. He said he was just doing what he was told, but he still went to jail. Are you discussing legal, moral, at scale ramifications with your architects that you're coaching? And then is this something that you're seeing getting reflected in sprint cycles now? Well, it's certainly reflected on uh, all of our projects because we are very hyper aware of this, a lot more so than I think the most, most of the industry. I was actually doing a keynote at conferences before all this shut down about basically about ethics and software development. And we really need to start paying attention to this because you know the uh, the damage that algorithms can do for uh, free things, you know, the the the, the common trope now is uh, social media sites like Facebook and Twitter. How much do they How much do they cost you? Oh, they're free. Well, that means you're the product, which means they feel free to manipulate you in any way that they feel like because you're their product. And of course, that manipulation also includes a bunch of really unethical stuff. And so I think we're going to see, hopefully not, I hope our industry can fix itself before legal requirements have to come in. But I think we will eventually get to the point where you know there's some legal ramifications for that. I think it's really important for architects in general, not only to look for really obvious things. This algorithm is trying to make people angry so we can keep them around for more ad clicks, but also looking at, am I building a part of something that is something bad? So am I building a component of something that is eventually going to be weaponized into something that's bad for society and bad for people? And in fact, in my keynote, what I was talking about, uh, the, the analogy I use towards storytelling, keynotes are a great place for storytelling. I tell the story of a physicist. You know, before 1945, physicists were considered some of the least harmful people on earth. You see the pictures of Einstein with the goofy face and the hair and oh, they're eccentric, you know, they're charming and all that. 
until they created the atomic bomb. And they realized that, wow, physicists know some stuff that's really dangerous. And, you know, several of the, the physicists who observed the atomic bomb really struggled with that the rest of their lives. Richard Feynman in particular said that as soon as he saw it go off, he said, I was struck with this sense of, should we have done this? Because, you know, by the time they blew it up, the war had already ended in Europe and was on the way out in Japan, but they'd gotten caught up in the problem solving part. Can we solve this puzzle? And they solved this puzzle and realized that they had put in the hands of the military this unbelievable dangerous force. And he struggled with that the rest of his life. What my appeal to software developers is, don't make a decision now that you're going to regret the rest of your life because you didn't think through the ethical implications of the decision you're making now for this component, this algorithm, whatever it is you're building. Because the last thing you want to do is know that you're responsible for some really horrible thing that has happened to hundreds or thousands or millions of people. That's not where you want to be. And if software developers and architects don't start thinking about ethics, then that's exactly where we're going to end up in exactly the same conundrum that the physicists ended up with in 1945. And the architects and other leadership at different levels need to make sure to create and foster that environment that's psychologically safe for those developers to feel like they can speak up. No question. There's got to be transparency and there's got to be some sort of mechanism to, if someone tells you to do something that you think is sketchy, there's got to be some sort of mechanism that you can vet that to make sure that it's it's actually not something that's illegal or immoral or unethical. I'm conscious of time, but I do want to ask you about something that I know ThoughtWorks for, which is ThoughtWorks Radar. Um, And in one of our first episodes, we discussed height and things like that. And I guess ThoughtWorks Radar is a kind of tool for understanding height. And I was wondering if you could sort of talk about what Radar is, but also how it was sort of developed and how it compares to other sort of tools. So think at like Gartner's Quadrant and stuff like that, but and, and kind of your part in helping put that together as well. Sure. It's fresh on my mind because we just went through the exercise. So there'll be a new radar coming out in a couple of weeks. So we just went through the uh, laborious exercise of putting it together. The main difference between our radar and something like Gardner is our radar is purely experience-based. So when we we have a group within ThoughtWorks, this technology advisory board, which are advisors to the CTO, Rebecca Parsons. And uh, at some point during, uh, we used to do these meetings face-to-face twice a year. We'd fly everybody to some location to talk about all things technology-related at ThoughtWorks, including things like ethics has come up in those meetings. And at some point there was a, a, we started doing this, you know, what cool things are you working on in your region kind of presentations across all the regions. And that got interesting enough. We started publishing it internally. And then uh, Darren Smith, one of the very clever guys that was working with the uh, tab group came up with this radar metaphor. And we started publishing that internally. And then some of our clients started asking us for it. So we started making it a public publication. So this is something we produce now twice a year. It's our opinion about things in the software development ecosystem, split into four quadrants, languages and frameworks, uh, techniques, tools, and platforms. And uh, what we do is a pine on those things. We have four rings hold, which is don't start anything new in it because we think it's bad or not good for some reason. Uh, Assess, which is basically research and development looks promising. Trial, which is we've done research and this looks like a future direction. And then adopt, which is this is its best of class. And if if you have this problem, this is the solution you should be using to solve this problem. 
problem. As I say, this is all practitioner based because the, the, the blips, we call the blips, are actually nominated from software projects and float up to the top into this group, this gathering of people who uh, put this together. And so this is very much experience based, but we're trying to give some advice to the software development world in general about cool things that we've seen. There are always cool new things popping up in the software development ecosystem. And it's almost impossible for an individual to keep track of all those things. And so uh, it's great for us who put the radar together because we get firsthand knowledge of that. But anybody who consumes it, you know, if you're not involved in the JavaScript ecosystem, this gives you a chance to dip your toe into that ecosystem and see what brand new stuff is delivered by people who are excited about the JavaScript ecosystem. So it's a way of vetting it, uh, contextually vetting it for, you know, what's the really coolest stuff that's happening in each of the, uh, the interesting technology ecosystems. We think it's a pretty valuable guide, not as, you know, you should automatically adopt these things, but as, you know, one of the, we were talking about the role of architect earlier. One of the most important things for an architect is to have breadth of knowledge, to know that lots of things exist. In fact, we argue that it's better to have breadth than depth in many cases. So it's better for me as an architect to know that there are five ways to solve this concurrency problem and to know deeply how to solve it in one of those solutions. And so the radar helps you breadth with breadth because it exposes you in a lightweight way to a bunch of things that you might not have found otherwise. Cool. And just really quickly, so you mentioned it's kind of experiential, which I really like, but it does feel sort of out of step with this kind of sort of broader trend towards data-driven and sort of, you know, large-scale quantities of data and information. But I was wondering if you could just sort of explain what you think the value of this sort of experiential approach is. Well, you know, you can quantify things as much as you want in software, but some things resist quantification and you need qualification as well. You need an experienced person who's worked with this piece of technology. I mean, we're, we're, we're actually firm believers that you can't really assess a piece of technology until you've used it in anger to solve some real problem. And this is a report from people who are using it to solve real problems about how effective it is as to how it says it's doing stuff. And so, you know, while big data analysis and that kind of stuff can do interesting pattern matching, nothing substitutes for a person's experience for the ref edges of something. Because even open source software, you know, they're always marketing their stuff. They're never going to, you'll never go to an open source page and see at the bottom, oh, by the way, this won't work with your authentication authorization framework. Because even if they know that, they're not going to put it on their web page. And so having someone's direct experience with it is invaluable. And I think that's where this cuts through a lot of the, you know, the marketing people do, or, I mean, we, we have people constantly come to us and say, uh, how can we pay you to get on our radar? And it's like, it doesn't work that way. You've got to produce really awesome stuff and then you might get on our radar, but that's the only way you can do it. And so there's a level of trust there that, you know, we're not, almost no commercial tools make it and it's all things that are based purely on our experience. And, you know, that's a, a hard a measure to hit in a lot of the software world. So I think that's why it's uh, valuable. And, cool. and, and a completely separate exercise from something that would look across projects and, you know, gather up statistical analysis, which would be a valuable perspective on things as well, but not quite what our radar is. Cool. I think that's a good place to wrap up. But to end, um, it'd be good just to give you a chance to tell people where they can find you. If you've got anything to promote, feel free to promote, you know, any, your, your books, obviously, uh, and your podcast. Yeah. Where can people find you? 
Yep. So lots of places. Uh, my website, neilford.com. Uh, my parents thought it'd be a cool practical joke on me to give me a slightly different spelling of the name Neil. So it's N-E-A-L-F-O-R-D.com. I was uh, early enough on the internet. I got my own name as a vanity site, which is a nice thing to have. I'm part of the ThoughtWorks Technology Podcast, which is a part of ThoughtWorks, of course. I do a lot of classes on the O'Reilly uh, Learning Platform. Uh, that's where most of my uh, public speaking is uh, happening now. All of my books have websites. So fundamentalsofsoftwarearchitecture.com has a website. Uh, evolutionarchitectures.com has a website. And our most uh, upcoming book, which I need to update the website for because we've made some changes to it, is architecturalhardparts.com. And so uh, any of uh, my books, the uh, websites have the, uh, they're very long, but they're very descriptive. So it's the name of the book.com. So uh, lots of places to find me. And thanks for having me today. It's been a pleasure. Brilliant. No, thanks for joining us. It's been, it's been great. It's been really interesting. So that's just about it for this week's episode. Thank you to Neil for taking the time to talk to us and thank you as well for listening to what we talk about when we talk about tech. We'll be back next time with another guest, but in the meantime, you can listen to our earlier episodes on our website, which is talkabouttechpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. We are at underscore talkabouttech. You can follow me on Twitter. I am at Rich G. Gall and Jennifer is at JK Riggins. So yeah, please do that. Like I said, we'll be back next time with another guest, but until then, please stay safe and good Bye.